It is Wednesday, March 23rd, 2022, and we are live. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. Welcome to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m., the Stupid Station, uh, the Future Radio. Uh, share this broadcasting on social media platforms. Uh, invite your friends to tune in also. Okay, calling numbers 313-778-7600, 313-778-7600 is the call-in number. If you have a question or comment, uh, a lot of people are watching uh, day number three of the Senate confirmation hearing of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson today. We saw uh, Republicans continue to act a complete fool. We saw Senator Lindsey Graham uh, whining and crying and complaining. Um, and he's still sore that uh, Judge uh, J. Michelle Childs uh, did not get the nomination, who was from South Carolina, who he was advocating for. Uh, he was crying about the Kavanaugh hearings that had nothing to do with uh, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Uh, we saw Senator Ted Cruz continue to make a complete fool out of himself today. He's going to run for president. It is, it is expected unless maybe Donald Trump tells him don't do so. Um, so we saw re re Republicans continue to act the fool. Uh, we're going to show you some of the lowlights of um, some of the Republicans and show you the highlights of uh, Senator Cory Booker, who had praise for uh, Judge Jackson. And uh, I posted today that uh, Senator Cory Booker uh, went high when uh, the lowly Republicans went low. And uh, he, he really made them look like idiots also. But that's not hard to do. OK, uh, so call the numbers 313-778-7600 if you have a question or comment. Now, there's a um, you know, we're going to look here at some of the uh, I want to look here at some of the uh, live updates from the Washington Post. Uh, Supreme Court nominee Judge Jackson says she would recuse herself from Harvard affirmative action cases, an affirmative action case coming up uh, soon. Now, she sits on the uh, Harvard's Board of Overseers. Her term expires uh, in the spring. She previously had not uh, said publicly what she would do uh, when it comes to this case. And but she uh, she was asked today by Senator Ted Cruz. Um, who is one of the, probably one of the most hated senators in the Senate. Uh, she was asked what she would do with that case, and she said she will recuse herself. Now, Judge Jackson's statement came as she testified for nearly 10 hours after testifying for about 13 hours on uh, Tuesday uh, before the Senate Judiciary Committee, with several Republicans sharply criticizing her as too lenient in her sentencing as a federal judge, they, they're saying she's soft on crime. Now, most of these senators, most of these Republicans who say she's soft on crime failed two times to vote to impeach the traitor in chief who was clearly uh, worthy of being impeached, clearly worthy of being removed from office. Two impeachment trials, the majority of Republican senators voted to acquit the traitor in chief but they want to talk about somebody being lenient on crime. Okay. Uh, remember, some of them are up for re-election uh, uh, in November 2022. Now, just Jackson countered that it was unfair to solely focus on a subset of cases and emphasized that she had handed down tough sentences. Later, Senator Cory Booker, Democrat from New Jersey, the only African-American senator on the panel, it's a 22 Senate panel, OK, the Senate Judiciary uh, 
committee. Uh, he's the only African-American senator on the panel. Uh, senator Raphael Warnock and Senator Ted Cruz are not on the Senate Judiciary panel. Uh, he came to just Kataji Brown Jackson's defense and praised her. Um, and, and she became visibly emotional. I think a lot of people did uh, when when uh, it came time for uh, Senator Craig Booker. to speak. Um, He told her that he earned that that you have earned this spot. You are worthy. You are a great American. Um, and, and she didn't because, you know, um, her daddy donated millions of dollars to Harvard or she was a legacy or anything like that. Okay. She actually earned it. Now the proceedings will continue on Thursday. Thursday is the final day. And on Thursday we'll hear outside witnesses. Now, um, there's a couple of things I want to highlight here. Uh, let's see here. Okay. So we got these, what I'm going to do, I want to go to on the other side of the break. We're going to let you hear some of what, um, happened today. Um, I want to go to this article here from um, Huffington Post. I want to go to this article here from Huffington Post. Also, um, we have some highlights from uh, day three from NBC News as well. But there was a there was a good article from the Huffington Post. I posted it uh, today on our Facebook fan page, the African History Network. This dealt with Ted Cruz on Tuesday when he attacked her over critical race theory, things like this. We saw some of the attacks continue the day, uh, not just from Senator Ted Cruz, but Josh Hawley of Missouri, uh, Tom Cotton out of Arkansas, but also idiotic um, uh, Senator from Tennessee, uh, Marsha Blackburn, okay? Uh, the one who asked her yesterday, um, uh, can she define what a woman is? Okay. Marsha Blackburn looks like she can't define what a comb is for her hair, but you know, that's, that's another story. Um, so Huffington Post had this, had this story today. Um, and this is about Senator Ted Cruz attacking a book by Ibram X. Kendi. And Ibram X. Kendi does not teach critical race theory. He said this before. Ted Cruz may have just boosted sales for the anti-racist children's book he attacked. Ted Cruz may have just boosted sales for the anti-critical race theory book he uh, that he attacked. Now, um, Anti-Racist Baby is a number one bestseller on Amazon a day after uh, Ted Cruz rallied against it during Judge Katanji Brown Jackson's confirmation hearing. Okay, so this is um, some revenge that uh, Ibram X. Kendi is getting on um, getting on Senator Ted Cruz. Okay, let me close these ads out. So uh, Senator Ted Cruz made a big production on Tuesday about how wrong it is that children's books promoting anti-racism are being taught at a private school in Washington, D.C., where Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown Jackson is a board member. That's the Georgia Day, the Georgetown Day School. Now, during Jackson's confirmation hearing, uh, Ted Cruz propped up posters featuring blown up images from some of some of these books and held up individual copies of them. 
one of the books he singled out was uh, the book Anti-Racist Baby by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. Okay. Uh, the book is one of the most stunning taught at Georgetown Day School, Senator Ted Cruz said, holding up a copy. He lamented it teaches children that babies are taught to be racist, not born racist, and that they are encouraged to admit if they have been racist and to talk about it. So then Ted Cruz asked Judge Jackson, do you agree? Now, Judge Jackson said she did not know the book. Uh, she did not know the book and had um, no say over. Um, she, she said she did not know the book was being used at Georgetown Day School. And she said that the board that she sits on had no say over what books were taught at the school, which is a private school, the first integrated school in the nation's capital. OK, uh, so but Ted Cruz Cruz's effort to smear the book, which he falsely claimed brainwashes children about a law school level academic discipline, critical race theory, uh, may have had the opposite uh, effect of his intended, uh, may have had the opposite effect of his intentions. As of Tuesday night, Anti-Racist Baby, which came out two years ago, is currently one of the best-selling children's books on Amazon in multiple categories, including the best-selling children's book on prejudice and racism. The best-selling children's book, including the category, the best-selling children's book on prejudice and racism. Okay, um, and, and they have a, let me see, they have a screenshot, okay. Uh, here's a Wednesday screenshot from Amazon's website which updates stats on its best-selling books on an hourly basis. Okay, so best-selling, best-sellers in children's books on prejudice and racism, uh, anti-racist baby right here, Eva Max Kendi. You also have a Troublemaker by John Cho. Um, Anti-Racist Baby is a best-selling children's book on Amazon.com a day after Senator Ted Cruz said its message said said its message that babies aren't born racist was stunning. Okay, this looks like Amazon.com is quoting him. Now, the number six best-selling children's book under the category of growing up. Um, Growing Up and Fact of Life, and the number 15 uh, best-selling book out of all children's books globally. This is uh, Anti-Racist Baby. Okay, so they have some more screenshots here as well of the book. Now, it's not clear if Anti-Racist Baby was already enjoying such astoundingly high sales before Ted Cruz's rant. But given that Amazon updates his rankings every hour, uh, that the book was published in 2020 and that Senator Ted Cruz made it front and center in Tuesday's high profile Supreme Court hearing, his efforts could not have hurt. OK, um, quote, the Amazon bestsellers calculation is based on Amazon sales and is updated hourly to reflect recent and historical sales of every item sold on Amazon, uh, reads the website's explanation of how it ranks as bestsellers. We created uh, we created category and subcategory bestseller lists to highlight an item's rank 
in the categories or subcategories where it really stands out. Okay, now here's a picture of um, was was the book? I think he he read Green Eggs and Ham on the Senate floor. Um, that look, Green Eggs and Ham looks like about his intellectual level. Senator Ted Cruz here he is holding up um, anti-racist baby by Ibram X. Kendi. Okay. Um, and we see uh, the results of that. All right. We'll continue this on the other side of the break. We're going to uh, let you hear some of what happened today at the uh, uh, Senate hearing. You listen to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation and Future Radio. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. The work that I do is larger than the fashion industry, it's larger than the art world. And I believe that I was born to bring newness into this world. I'm Kaima McIntyre, I'm 24 years old and I'm an artist. I create everything from paintings to jewelry design, metaphysical jewelry to be specific, and fashion design. The only reason why my prom dress went viral is because people needed it. Within a few days of going viral, Notori Naughton reached out to me. and She's like, I saw your dress, can you make me a dress? I was equally as shocked to be asked by a celebrity to design their dress at the age of 17. That's just one person and the list just continues to go on to Janet Jackson, to Tyra Banks. It really hits home. That means that the discussion is happening on the grounds in real time. iRedify is a black-owned digital platform that showcases black and brown cultures and people. The books on the platform are written by African-American authors, Afro-Caribbean authors, African authors, and so much more. Kids 14 and under can read ebooks, listen to audiobooks, and complete learning activities. Kids can even write in the books digitally. Get unlimited access to everything on the platform for only $8.99 a month at iRedify.com. Sign up for your membership today. 910, the Superstation, Detroit's only African-American talk radio. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation, the Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. It is Wednesday, March 23rd, 2022, and we are live. Okay, calling numbers 313-778-7600, 313-778-7600. Here's the calling number if you have a question or comment. Uh, remember, you can still register for the online classes I teach on Saturdays and Sundays. Um, on, on Saturdays is ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach them in school. We do this class uh, Saturdays, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, we do a thousands of years of history and what leads up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. And then on uh, Sundays, it's uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. Both classes are on sale $60, regularly $130, regularly on sale $60. We have a bundle pack and get both classes for uh, $100. Even after the class is over with, uh, you still have full access. You can still watch the entire course. Okay, so visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, and we'll post a link here on the thread of the broadcast. All right, uh, I want to go back to uh what happened in day three uh, shakita we're going to clip number one from nbc news um i want to go back looking at what happened here uh in day number three 
uh, Washington Post has a good uh, recap, five takeaways from uh, day number three. Okay, so we're going to look at this uh, quickly here. Uh, five takeaways from day number three. And then NBC News also has um, highlights from day number three as well. Uh, let me pull this up here from NBC News. Okay, um, Democrats assail conspiracy theories. Lindsey Graham gets fired up and law and order, the television variety, not not the courtroom kind, makes an appearance. So we saw um, these conspiracy theories, uh, child pornography, being sought on child pornography, uh, sentencing, all this nonsense today. Uh, the Senate wrapped up the final round of public questioning of Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson on Wednesday evening as the Supreme Court nominee faced uh, familiar critics uh, on her record and politically charged issues. Uh, Judge Jackson, you are extraordinary. Your story is a great American story, says Senate Judiciary Chair uh, Dick Durbin of Illinois. He said as he concluded the day's proceedings, you are exceptionally qualified for this position. You are exceptionally qualified for this position. Uh, now, Dick Durbin uh, praised Republicans who were respectful of her and assailed some unnamed, uh, quote, obvious glaring exceptions, end quote, for their offensive treatment of the historic pick to the uh, Supreme Court uh, who will be the first African-American uh, female Supreme Court justice. The committee is now set to hear from witnesses on Thursday who will speak about uh, Judge Jackson's nomination. Senator Durbin said the panel would meet to consider her nomination on March 28th. A uh, committee vote is likely to be delayed until April 4th. All right. So uh, let's go to, uh, I want to go to uh, clip number one. Let's go to clip number one, uh, Shakita from, uh, NBC News. For a second straight day, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson facing heated questions from Republicans charging she's soft on crime. Why did you sentence him for half the amount? You're not recognized, Senator. Pointing to cases where Jackson handed down sentences for child pornography offenders that were shorter than prosecutors recommended. One of the most effective deterrents is one that I imposed in every case and that Judges across the country impose in every case, which is substantial, substantial supervision. And judge, the wait, 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 Judge. Do you think it is a bigger deterrent to take somebody who's on a computer looking at sexual images of children in the most disgusting way is to supervise their computer habits versus putting them in jail? No, Senator, I didn't say versus. That's exactly what you said. Jackson's sentences were in line with 70% of federal judges. Late last night, Republicans pressed Jackson on cultural issues, too, including transgender rights. Can you provide a definition for the word woman? Can I provide a definition? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can't. You can't? N not in okay. this context. So I'm not a biologist. The if there's a dispute about a definition... People make arguments, and I look at the right. law, and I decide. Well, late today, Jackson becoming emotional as Cory Booker praised her historic nomination. You have earned this spot. You are worthy. You are a great American. 
And tonight, Judge Jackson says it's confirmed she'll recuse herself from an affirmative action case next term involving minority admissions policies at Harvard, where she serves on a policy board. Okay. Um, I want to go to clip two, uh, Shakita. Now, here is Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. She's responding to Senator uh, Whitehouse, uh, Democratic Senator Whitehouse, and uh, she's explaining the differences between trial, being a trial judge, and a, uh, and a judge on the appellate court. Okay, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. Let's go to clip two, Shakita. My belief from my time spent as a practicing lawyer that the role of fact-finding belongs at the trial court level. That's where you can look the witnesses in the eye. That's where the evidence can be amassed. That's where the trial judge has the responsibility of sifting through it. Uh, If there's a jury, then the jury, of course, is the ultimate fact-finder. But if you're in a non-jury trial, the trial judge is the fact-finder. Then the case goes up on appeal, and it comes up with a record, a record of fact in the case. And in my view, that record of fact that comes up to the appellate court is actually a constraint on the power of the appellate court to go wandering off. The court is obliged to consider the appeal based on the factual record that was adduced in the district court. So you having lived in both of those houses, the trial courthouse and the appellate courthouse. Tell me a little bit about what that change meant to you as you went from being a trial judge to an appellate judge. Thank you, Senator. Um, It is a really big difference. As you mentioned, at the trial court, you are on the ground level. Parties have filed the case. You have all of the issues usually um, at the trial level because you'll have a complaint if it's a civil case, and um, there'll be a lot of litigation about the development of the facts in the case. In civil cases, you have a period of discovery in many cases that is really about the development of the record, what actually happened um, um, in this case. Sometimes there's even a trial, um, and that, too, is a part of the development of the facts in the case because a jury will be charged with the responsibility of determining what happened, who's guilty, for example, if it's a criminal case or who's liable, um, if any, if it's a civil case. And sometimes there are even um, questions presented to the jury that they have to determine the facts. At the appellate level, as you said, there is um, already a record, and the court is looking primarily at the law, the legal principles that guided the decision below based on the factual record. And importantly, at the appellate level, there are standards of review that the Court of Appeals applies when it decides how to Uh, review whether or not to reverse or affirm 
the judgment of the lower court. And I've um, been very mindful, especially as a trial judge, of the standards of review. When I was prepping lawyers for oral argument before appellate courts, um, I would often say, please don't quarrel with the facts mm. unless you have a knockdown case. Because if you want to get the appellate court to relitigate the facts, you're up against the harshest standard of review available, the clearly erroneousness test. And clear error is no small thing. Um, outside of that narrow finding by an appellate court that somehow the district court got it wrong, filtered through that clear error standard, are there other circumstances in which it's proper for appellate courts to do their own independent fact-finding outside of the record of the case that they're reviewing? I am not aware of any. Uh, there might, there may be, but um, in my experience, the fact-finding is done at the trial level. The Court of Appeals only looks at facts under standards like clear error. Um, and so, therefore, the record is usually set and established by the time you get to the Court of Appeals. Well, okay, uh, pause it right there, Shakita. We're coming up on the other side. We're coming up on a break. On the other side of break, we're going to let you hear from Senator Cory Booker and what he had to say uh, today at the day three of the um, hearing confirmation here for Katanji Brown-Jackson. Listen to the African History Network show. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. What does self-care mean to you? To us, it's an opportunity to reconnect with nature. A chance to create something remarkable. At Sage and Elm Apothecary, our handcrafted skin care and household products immerse you in Earth's sweetest nectar, connecting you to nature in a way you never imagined. See for yourself and visit us at sageandelmapothecary.com. Abundant Capital Group is a real estate investment company with over 20 years of experience in real estate. They specialize in two areas of real estate, one, they solve real estate problems with creative financing solutions that give the seller the most money for their property. And two, they show individuals how to get a higher rate of return on their investment capital with real estate note investing. If you are looking to sell or need to sell your property, here is what they provide. Market value offer, even if you have little or no equity, they typically pay all closing costs, which can be thousands of dollars. They close on a date of the seller's choosing, and the seller does not have to be out of the house at the time of closing. They take the property in an as-is condition, and the seller is not required to make any repairs. Give them a call or email them today for a free consultation and see how they can help you with your real estate needs. Call them at 973-475-8488. That's 973-475-8488. Visit their website, AbundantCapitalGroup.com. That's AbundantCapitalGroup.com. And email them at ACG at AbundantCapitalGroup.com. 
Follow them on Instagram and Facebook at Abundant Capital Group. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM Superstation Future Radio. Give us a thumbs up. Give us a heart. Give us a like on this broadcast. If you're watching on Facebook, YouTube, on Twitter, uh, what have you. And uh, be sure to follow us on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network, and our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotep. I-M-H-O-T-E-P. Check out this tweet here from uh, the Washington Post. We'll probably talk about this on tomorrow's show. Uh, This is uh, from the Washington Post Twitter page. Just Ketanji Brown Jackson faces four days of Senate hearings that are sure to include questions about her career. Here's which justices, if any, had similar educational and career experience before they made it to the Supreme Court. And when you look at this, let's back up, let's look at this here. Now, this is just Jackson right here, okay? You see all these all these yellow boxes, all these checked, okay? Public, she went to a public high school, Ivy League uh, law school, Harvard, uh, uh, Supreme Court clerked for uh, Justice uh, Stephen Breyer. She was a public defender. She, she served on the U.S. Sentencing Commission. Uh, she was a, a district judge, federal district judge. And also a federal court of appeals as well. This judge and, and uh federal court of appeals. Now look at uh Clarence Thomas. Okay. He went to Ivy League school, court of appeals judge. Look at Justice Breyer, who she clerked for. Okay. Uh he wasn't a public defender. He was qualified, but wasn't public defender, wasn't a district judge. Look at uh Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, okay? Look at uh Alito, uh look at Amy Coney Barrett. Only two out of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Only two out of seven categories. Uh, Brett, uh, give me another beer, Kavanaugh. Three out of seven cat- uh, categories. Gorsuch, whose whose seat was stolen from Merrick Garland because he was blocked in the Senate by Mitch McConnell. Okay, so yeah, so you know the, you you had a bunch of punk ass hater Republicans, but they know that they are totally unqualified these republicans who are questioning her about her record know they are totally unqualified now uh i want to go to this clip here uh this is uh senator cory booker and we just had it queued up okay this is senator cory booker today uh uh, shakita you got the clip we'll cue it cue cue it up we're going to now this is senator cory booker this is what he had to say today has been doing this all into the lead up and saying things, tweeting things that I think that a lot of us, when I was just trying to get some advice here, is this is what the new standard is going to be. That any judge coming before us that has ever chosen outside of the sentencing guidelines, below the sentencing guidelines, we're creating this environment now where I could make myself the hero of people who have been victims of some horrible crime and suddenly put whatever judge I want on the defensive by trying to drag out little bits when they have no context to the case. None of the facts. They're seeking to exploit the complexities of a criminal justice system. The reason why it goes to the core of our values, torture. Barack Obama was named once he was Bush left office. Okay, pause it right there, Shakita. Pause it right there. 
Okay, those watching on Facebook and YouTube, keep watching. We're going to keep going for a few more minutes here. We're going to play some more of that. Uh, I'll be back on Roland Martin Unfiltered on Friday. Watch for me there. Um, sign up for our uh, 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 online classes. Visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Remember, right now, let's correct wrong behaviors. Not over till we win. We'll count it forever. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. Okay, stand by. Let's go back. I want to go back to this clip here. Um, this is... Senator Cory Booker, when he came his turn today um, at the confirmation hearing for Jessica Tanji Brown Jackson. Senator Booker. Uh, thank you very much. Judge, after me, only five to go. <laughs> <laughs> but sit back for a second because uh, I don't have questions right away. I actually have a number of things I, I just want to say because this has been uh, not a surprise given the history that we all know, not a surprise, but. Uh, perhaps a little bit of a disappointment, uh, some of the things that have been said in, in this hearing. Uh, the way you have dealt with some of these things, um, that's why you are a judge and I am a politician, because you have sat with grit and grace and have shown us just extraordinary uh, demeanor uh, during the times where people were saying things to you that are actually out of the norm. I had to go up dais uh, to ask some of my more senior colleagues, about the, what I feel like is a dangerous precedent. People are taking uh, a thousand cases you've been over. Is that right? I'm sorry. I said you wouldn't ask you questions, but just give me a Some, something like that, something like that. And from what I understand is that these cases are often takes take days, weeks, sometimes months, right? To, to, to decide to, in to a case. Yeah, yeah. Yes. There's a trial sometimes. And the, folks are taking any of those cases and just trying to pick pieces out. And so uh, my, my colleague, Senator Hawley, has been doing this all into the lead up and saying things, tweeting things that I think that a lot of us, when I was just trying to get some advice here, is this is what the new standard is going to be. That any judge coming before us that has ever chosen outside of the sentencing guidelines, below the sentencing guidelines, we're creating this environment now where I could make myself the hero of people who have been victims of some horrible crime and suddenly put whatever judge I want on the defensive by trying to drag out little bits when they have no context to the case. None of the facts. They're seeking to exploit the complexities of a criminal justice system, the reason why we have a third branch of government. I, I feel bad that there was a judge mentioned by name in this hearing that's uh, uh, from Senator Hawley's state. What is that judge going to think next time they, they have a complicated sexual abuse case that comes before them, and they know that they could possibly be called out if they go below the sentencing guidelines, which I showed you yesterday in my lack of chart. If you remember, I was uncharted. <laughs> um, but that you are deciding completely in the norm. 70-plus percent in many states of people are doing just like you did. But I'm a, I'm a Democratic senator. I, 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 I've never quoted from this very well-respected conservative a periodical. This is the National Review. Very well-respected. They're not, not necessarily something I agree with all the time. But here's what the National uh, Review, this is the title. Senator Hawley's disingenuous attack against Judge Jackson's record on child pornography. Let's read the first paragraph. I would oppose Judge Katanji uh, Brown Jackson because of her judicial philosophy for the reasons I outlined last week. 
I address that in a separate post. For now, I want to dis discuss the claim by Senator Josh Hawley that Judge Jackson is appallingly soft on child pornography offenders. This is the kicker here. The allegations appear meritless to the point of demagoguery. I, I, I got letters from leaders of victims' rights groups, survivors of assault, all saying sort of the same thing with the National Review. Feel proud about yourself. You brought together right and left in this, in this, in this calling out of people that will sit up here and try to pull out from cases and try to put themselves in a position where they're the defenders of our children to a person who has children, to a person whose family goes out in streets and defends children. I, I, I mean, this is a, a new, new low. And what's especially surprising about this is it didn't happen last year. You were put on a court that I'm told is the, considered like the second most powerful court in our land. And you were passed with bipartisan support. Nobody brought it up then. Did they not do their homework? Were they lax? Did they make a mistake? I wonder, as they ask you the question, do you regret? I wonder if they regret that, that they didn't bring that out. No. Why? Because it was an allegation that is meritless to the point of demagoguery. You are, I, I don't mean this in any way, because if anybody called me average, I would, <laughs> I would be upset, but you are a, a mainstream judge. Your sentencing, I've looked at the data, falls in the mainstream on everything from child sexual assault to all the other issues that people are trying to bring up. Some of these things are being cast at you that you called George Bush a war criminal. Come on, that is painful. Especially because, as you said, the brief change. These are names that you have to put in. And we're talking about a real issue that goes to the core of our values, torture. Barack Obama was named once, he, once Bush left office. There is an absurdity to this that is, it, it, it is almost comical if it was not so dangerous. Because the next time a judge comes before us on the right or the left that has a body of work like you do, gosh, one of the, uh, some performance artists on our side could pull out one of the cases where they were below the sentencing guidelines, say, for example, it was on something like as horrific as rape that we all agree is horrific, and they could suddenly put themselves as the defense. How dare we put someone who's soft on crime? Well, are you soft on crime? God bless America. I got this great text. I've become really good friends with the, the folks at the FOP for my negotiations. And this was my favorite text. You all got to get this. I think my brother Kennedy might get a kick out of this. He goes, things that are uncountable, stars in the sky, grains of sand on the beach, and the number of times Democrats will mention that the FOP endorsed Judge Jackson in this hearing. <laughs> but let me mention it again. <laughs> Just in case my people say you're rough on crime, folks, really want to try to make that stick. You were endorsed by the largest organization of rank and file police officers.
You were endorsed by the bosses, the largest organization of chiefs of police. And, and you were endorsed by Noble, who I hope people find out more about that organization. You got uncles that are officers. You got a brother, not just an officer, who went to serve after 9-11. Your family's not soft on terrorism. He went out there to capture and kill and defend this country from terrorists. I, I, I actually sitting back here and finding this astonishing, but then I, I do my homework. I, I love that my colleague brought up Constance Baker Motley. You know, when, when, when she was getting to the floor of the Senate, they were trying to stop her with outrageous accusations. You know what the accusation was back then? She was a communist. Dragging up stories, trying to throw anything that they might stick. But this is what you and I know. Any one of us senators could yell as loud as we want that Venus can't return a serve. We could yell as loud as we want that Beyonce can't sing. We could yell as much as we want that astronaut Mae Jamison didn't go all that high. But you know what? <laughs> they got nothing to prove. As it says in the Bible, let the work I've done speak for me. Well, you have spoken. You started speaking as a little girl, watching that man right there try to raise a family and study law while your mama supported everybody. You spoke in high school when you started distinguishing yourself. And you know what you said when they told you you couldn't go to Harvard? Watch me. I went to law school. I didn't serve on the law review. You did. I didn't clerk. At every level of the federal court, you clerked for a Supreme Court justice, one widely respected on both sides, which really shaped you. You left there and, and, and you went to private practice, and you know what you found? This is what you told me, that you had those tough choices that working moms have to make, the demands of a private law firm, raising your kids. It, it just didn't add up. You went before the Senate three times in a bipartisan manner. God bless America. We don't do that much stuff bipartisan around here. You went to become a public defender because you wanted to understand all aspects of the law. Who does that? We live in a society that's very materialistic sometimes, very, very consumeristic. You went to, do people become public defenders for the money? No. Your family and you speak to service, service, service. And I'm telling you right now, I'm not letting anybody in the Senate steal my joy. <laughs> I told you this at the beginning. I, I am, I, I'm embarrassed. It happened earlier today. I just look at you and I, I start getting full of emotion. I'm jogging this morning. And I'm at the end of the block I live on. And I get terrified because I put my music on loud when I'm jogging, <laughs> trying to block out the noise of the, of the heart attack I'm having. <laughs> <laughs> and this woman comes up on me, practically tackles me, an African-American woman. And the look on her eyes, she just wanted to touch me because I think because I'm sitting so close to you. <laughs> and tell me what it meant to her to watch you sitting where you're sitting. And you did not get there because of some left-wing agenda? 
He didn't get here because of some dark money groups. You got here how every black woman in America who's gotten anywhere has done. By being <laughs> like Ginger Rogers said, I did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards in heels. <laughs> and, and so I, I'm just sitting here saying, nobody's stealing my joy. Nobody's going to make me angry, especially not people that are called in a conservative magazine demagogic for what they're bringing up that just doesn't hold water. I'm not going to let my joy be stolen because I know you and I, we appreciate something that we get that a lot of my colleagues don't. I know Tim Scott does. When I first came to this place, I was the fourth black person ever popularly elected to the United States Senate. And I still remember a lot of mixed people, white folks, black folks work here. But at night, when people are in line to come in to clean this place, the, the, the percentage of minorities shift a lot. And so I'm walking here, first week I'm here, and somebody who's been here for decades doing the urgent work of the Senate, but it's the unglamorous work that goes on no matter who's in offices, the guy comes up to me, all he wants to say, I can tell is, I'm so happy you're here, but he comes up and he can't get the words out. And this man, my elder, starts crying. And I, I just hugged him and he just kept telling me, it is so good to see you here. It's so good to see you here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I, I love my brother, Tim Scott. We could write a dissertation on our disagreements. He gave the best speech on race. I wish I could have given as good of a speech but talking to the challenges and indignities that are still faced. And you're here. I was in the White House with my Democratic colleagues, and I'm, again, I'm in my joy. I can't help it. <laughs> and, and, and the president's asking our advice, who should we nominate and whatever. And I look at Kamala, and we have a knowing glance, which we've had for years, when she and I used to sit on this end of this committee at times. And then I try to get out to the president what it means what it means. And I want to tell you when I look at you, this is why I get emotional. I'm sorry, you're, you're, you're a person that is so much more than your race and gender. You're a Christian, you're a mom, you're, you're, you're an intellect, you love books. But for me, I'm sorry, I, I, it's hard for me not to look at you and not see my mom, not to see my my cousins, one of them who had to come here and sit behind you. She had to be, she had to have your back. I see my ancestors and yours. Nobody's going to steal the joy of that woman in the street or the calls that I'm getting or the texts. Nobody's going to steal that joy. You have earned this spot. You are worthy. You are a great American. Your hero is Constance Baker Motley. Mine, she has sat on my desk for my offices that I've held. She's my icon of America. Her name is Harriet Tubman. There is a love in this country that is extraordinary. You admitted it about your parents. They loved this nation, even though there were laws preventing them from getting together. When they we're loving. There were laws in this country that would have prevented you from marrying your husband. It wasn't that long ago. It was last generation. But they didn't stop loving this country, even though this country didn't love them back.
And what were the words of your heroes in mind? What did Constance Baker Motley do? Did she, this country that she saw insults and injuries, when she came out of law school, law firms wouldn't even hire her because she was a woman. Did she become bitter? Did she try to create a revolution? No, she used the very constitution of this nation. She loved it so much, she wanted America to be America. As Langston Hughes wrote, oh, let America be America again. The land that never has been yet, but yet must be the land where everyone is free. Oh, yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me, but I swear this oath, America will be. That is the story of how you got to this desk, you and I and everyone here, generations of folk who came here and said, America, I'm Irish, you may say, no, Irish or dogs need to apply, but I'm going to show this country that I can be free here. I can make this country love me as much as I love it. Chinese Americans first forced into mere slave labor, building our railroads, connecting our country, saw the ugliest of America, but they were going to build their home here and say, America, you may not love me yet, but I'm going to make this nation live up to its promise and hope. LGBTQ Americans from Stonewall women to Seneca, hidden figures who didn't even get their play until some Hollywood movie finally talked about them and how they were critical for us defying gravity. All of these people loved America. And so you faced insults here that were shocking to me. Well, actually not shocking. But you are here because of that kind of love. And nobody's taken this away from me. So you got five more folk to go through. Five more of us. And then you can sit back and let us have all the debates. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to be a well-charted Senate floor because it's not going to stop. They're going to accuse you of this and that. Heck, in honor of your person who shares your birthday, you might be called a communist. But don't worry, my sister. Don't worry. God has got you. And how do I know that? Because you're here. And I know what it's taken for you to sit in that seat. Harriet Tubman is one of my heroes because the more I read about this person, the more, I mean, she was viciously beaten. Her whole life, she used to fall into spells, cracked skull. She faced starvation, chased by dogs. And when she got to freedom, what did she do? Did she rest? No, she went back. Again and again and again. The, star was, the sky was full of stars. But she found one that was a harbinger of hope. For better days, not just for her and those people that were enslaved, but a, a harbinger of hope for this country. And she never gave up on America. She fought in the, led troops in the Civil War. She was involved in the suffrage movement. And as I came back from my run, after being near assaulted by, a, by someone on the street, I thought about her. And how she looked up. She kept looking up. No matter what they did to her, she never stopped looking up. And that star 
It was a harbinger of hope. Today, you're my star. You are my harbinger of hope. This country is getting better and better and better. And when that final vote happens and you ascend onto the, onto the highest court in the land, I'm going to rejoice. And I'm going to tell you right now, the greatest country in the world, the United States of America, will be better because of you. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Booker. We're going to take a 10-minute break and come back and have the last five senators ask their questions. All right. So that is uh, part of what happened today. <laughs> That's one of the highlights of what happened today um, at the, the third day of the Senate confirmation hearing for Jessica Tanji Brown Jackson. Okay. <laughs> and if you look at the article that um, I cited from the National Review, and we showed this, um, the um, and, I, and I showed it when we were still on uh, nine ten a.m. Superstation WFBF. Um, it called it talked about how uh, Josh Hawley's attacks on Jessica Tanji Brown Jackson are ridiculous, are ridiculous. Okay, so read this one here from uh, the National Review. Uh, yeah, Senator Cory Booker did a great job. <laughs> That's gone viral, all right? Senator Holly's disingenuous attack against Judge Jackson's record on child pornography, March 20th, 2022. This is a right-wing publication, but part when they talked about the fact that this is demagoguery, okay, I want to discuss uh, Senator Josh Holly, Republican of Missouri, that judge, I want to address... Uh, uh, for now, I want to discuss the claim by Senator Josh Hawley, Republican from Missouri, that Judge Jackson is appallingly soft on child pornography offenders. The allegation appears meritless to the point of demagoguery. Josh Hawley wants to run for president, okay? And also they're pushing this. This is uh, believed to be attached to this to the crazy QAnon conspiracy theory um, QAnon conspiracy theories also. It's just stupidity. All right. So that happened today as well. Um, and let's see here. Okay. So uh, people don't understand that judges don't define what a woman is. They don't No, I don't think any judge, I don't think anybody, uh, for the, uh, Supreme Court nominee has been asked that question one. This is a stupid question for Marshall Blackburn. Judges follow the law. They're not biologists. So this is what happens when people don't know how to stay in their own lane, have absolutely no clue what the hell they're talking about. But this is the type of stupidity that you deal with also. Now, he mentioned uh, just um, Constance Baker Motley, okay, who was an attorney. She was the first African-American federal judge as well. Uh, two pieces. We'll probably talk about uh, uh, Judge Motley on our Sunday show because we have two hours on Sunday. This is uh, one article here from Politico.com uh, about her. Here's a picture of her. And she was involved in um, um, uh, one of the attorneys, uh, Brown versus Board of Education also. Um, 
opinion, this is an opinion piece for Politico, this black woman could have served on the Supreme Court decades ago. She has some lessons for Katanji Brown Jackson. Constance Baker Motley had sterling qualifications. It didn't matter to her critics. Constance Baker Motley had sterling qualifications. Uh, it didn't matter to her critics though. Um, now, okay, so you read this piece here. Constance Baker Motley, the first African-American woman appointed to the federal bench was touted for the Supreme Court as early as the 1960s. She was eminently qualified. The National Women's Political Caucus called her, quote, an obvious choice, end quote, given her accomplishments and her prominent role in the struggle for human rights. Yet Motley's sterling qualifications did not matter much to the critics who denied and diminished her accomplishments and her character. Detractors could not or would not face the truth. Despite the era's rampant discrimination, despite the era's rampant discrimination, this black woman's professional accomplishments far surpassed those of many other lawyers, including male and white judicial nominees. So she never got the nod. As a path-breaking path figure enters the confirmation process, we need to be on guard for the modern version of the tired old playbook used against Constance Baker Motley. Motley made an indelible mark on the legal profession and the country as a chief legal tactician of the civil rights movement. She helped litigate Brown versus Board of Education, one of the most important cases in American constitutional law. She desegregated schools and universities in the South. She represented Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Birmingham, Alabama, and she won she won nine of the 10 cases that she argued before the U.S. Supreme Court. She argued 10 cases in the U.S. Supreme Court, won nine out of 10. But for many, her record was simply never enough. Even the American Bar Association, which was all white until 1950, rated Baker, Constance Baker Motley merely qualified, which is the middle tier for a federal judgeship, asserting that she lacked trial experience in New York. Now this was ludicrous, this was a ludicrous objection given her extraordinary background. She had by then litigated nearly 200 cases in federal and appellate courts nationwide and in the process secured the constitutional rights of students, protesters, and capital defendants, U.S. capital defendants. For others, it was, it was precisely Motley's success that made her a lightning rod. They recast her remarkable record as a civil rights lawyer into bias or professional narrowness. Constance Baker Motley's role 
in the fight for equal opportunity in American institutions meant they said that she could not be fair to all litigants. So she's, she, she is fighting to hold America accountable to the U.S. Constitution and using the law to make sure America stays true to what it put on paper. And her detractors are saying, oh, she, she, she can't be fair. She's too biased. White supremacist, white supremacist James Eastland of Mississippi, who was the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, he is a white supremacist. Senator James Eastland had in, in, in his Senate office, Senator James Eastland had the Confederate battle flag of Northern Virginia in his office. Okay. Senator James Eastland of Mississippi was a white supremacist segregationist. He was a Democrat also. Okay, because because um, you you still have even though a lot of the segregationist Democrats leave the Democratic Party and go to the Republican Party, and you're going to have Republicans who um, pro Republicans who are pro civil rights who are going to leave the Republican Party and go to the Democratic Party. This is um, this is the uh, party realignment that begins in 1928 with the Lily White movement of 1928, which was the effort of Republicans to uh, appeal to Southern segregationist Democrats in five former Confederate states and get them to vote for Herbert Hoover, who was the Republican candidate for president in 1928. And um, the, the, the Republicans started ignoring um, the concerns and issues of African-Americans. They were ignoring the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, which rose back to prominence in the 1920s, spearheaded by the movie, The Birth of a Nation in 1915, which debuted February 8th, 1915, directed by D.W. Griffith. And the Ku Klux Klan were the heroes of the movie. And then you're going to, by, by 1960, two thirds of African-Americans had already switched over to the Democratic Party. It wasn't because of the civil rights after 64, the voting rights after 65. Two thirds had already switched over by 1960. That goes back to 1928. But you're gonna have some white supremacist segregationists who stay with the Democratic Party and they're gonna die out. Strom Thurmond left the party after he ran for president as a Dixiecrat, 1947, 1948. Strom Thurmond switches over to the Republican Party where he died a Republican like 99 years old, something like that. So Senator James Eastland of Mississippi, chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee and the proud defender of white supremacy, held up Constance Baker Motley's appointment to the federal district court for seven months by equating her civil rights advocacy with communism. By equating her civil rights advocacy with communism. So saying that, OK, she wants equal rights for everybody. Oh, that's communism. Oh, she, oh. So you, you're going to hold America accountable to the U.S. Constitution? Oh, you want desegregation, all this stuff? That's communism. No, that's holding America accountable for what they put on paper. Senator Robert F. Kennedy, John F. Kennedy's brother, Senator Robert F. Kennedy of New York thwarted Constable Baker Motley's nomination to replace Thurgood Marshall on the Court of Appeals 
after President Lyndon Baines Johnson appointed Thurgood Marshall after, as a U.S. Solicitor General. It would be seen as too political, too political, Kennedy argued, to appoint two black NAACP lawyers to high federal posts at the same time. It would be too political. Now, the future liberal icon lobbied instead for a respected white male jurist. Now, even after Constance Baker Motley earned her seat on the bench, lawyers continued to weaponize her race, sex, and practice background. In 1975, an attorney for a prestigious New York firm accused of uh, sex discrimination argued that because Constance Baker Motley, an African-American woman, likely had experienced bias in place, she cannot preside as a judge over the lawsuit because being an African-American woman, most likely she experienced bias in the workplace. Now, Judge Motley definitely rejected this identity-based argument. She said, quote, if background or sex or race of each judge were by definition sufficient grounds for removal, no judge on this court could hear this case. If background or sex or race of each judge were by definition sufficient grounds for removal, no judge on this court could hear this case, she wrote. Her, her opinion, which turned the lawyer's arguments on his head, argument on his head, is still cited today to reject identity-based claims to disqualify a judge. Yet from the moment that Justice Stephen Breyer announced his retirement and President Joe Biden reaffirmed his pledge to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court, the groundwork for an identity-driven dismissal of qualified candidates was being laid. The quote-unquote unqualified aspersions derision, negative comments, denigrating comments, the unqualified aspersions will never be entirely shut down. But most of 99.9% .9 of the time, the unqualified aspersions and derision is coming from people who are totally unqualified to be federal, to be a federal judge, to be a judge on the uh, appellate court, or to be on the U.S. Supreme Court. Read the rest piece here from Politico.com. This is by uh, Tomiko Brown Nagin, okay, who is dean, who's the uh, who is dean of Harvard Radcliffe Institute and author of the book Civil Rights: The Civil Rights Queen, Constance Baker Motley and the Struggle for Equality. Civil Rights Queen, Constance Baker Motley and the Struggle for Equality. Okay, check that out at Politico.com. Uh, all right. Now, if you like this type of information, give us a thumbs up, give us a like, give us a heart. Uh, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. We have the information right here um, on the homepage of our website, also AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We're celebrating our 12th year anniversary 
of me uh, broadcasting the African History Network show. We've done over a thousand uh, broadcasts. If you click here, listen to podcasts, um, it takes you to our blog talk radio page. You can listen to, uh, we have podcasts going back to 2010 there. So I've done over um, a thousand uh, broadcasts of the show. This helps us keep doing the research, stay on the air, keep broadcasting, pay some of the bills, et cetera, because this is a lot of work. Um, dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App and through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. When you go to Cash App, this is our fish app account, dollar sign the AHN show, S-H-O-W, says Michael, shows my picture there. Here's our link for Cash App and here's the button for PayPal also. These other ones here are fake African History Network cash app accounts. That's not us. Okay, um, let's continue here. So I want to go to, um, oh, also uh, Saturday, we have uh, a new online class starting up, Great African Women in History, the Mothers of Civilization. I pushed it back a week. That's going to start up um, Saturday, March 26th. That's 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Great African Women in History, the Mothers of Civilization. So we'll deal with profiles of over 100 uh, African women all throughout history, women of African descent all throughout history. Saturday, March 26th, Saturday, April 2nd, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This class is uh, $25. I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have book references, video clips, all of that. And even after the class is over, if you still have full access to the class as well. Okay. So that's great African women in history, the mothers of civilization. So you can register for that. There's bonus content that you can uh, watch uh, also as soon as you register for the class. All right. Uh, I want to go to uh, this next story. Then we're going to get out of here because I have a lot of work to do. A story that did not get a lot of coverage today. I saw a little coverage uh about it on the Black News Channel. And I watch um, MSNBC and the Black News Channel all day. And I'm doing research and getting and preparing for the show. Um, this is something that took place at the White House today. There was a um, press conference held that deals with uh, ending racial and ethnic discrimination when it comes to home appraisals. And this was Vice President Kamala Harris and HUD Secretary Marsha Fudge. I saw uh, some information about this on on uh, Black Women Views, uh, Reese Colbert's uh, page on Instagram. We're both panelists on Roller Martin Unfiltered. So Reese was at the White House today and covered this. And she got to um, uh, speak with uh, HUD Secretary Marshall Fudge as well. But if we look at this uh, article here, and let me pull this up, I'm gonna I'm gonna show you a clip of what happened today at the White House. Also, uh, ABC Channel Seven out of Chicago has an article on this, and then also I, I posted one earlier today about this. Um, but ABC Channel 7 out of Chicago has a, has a uh, story on this also. Uh, U.S. plans, uh, hold on, let me pull this up here. U.S. plan aims to end racial ethnic discrimination in home appraisals. U.S. plan aims to end racial ethnic discrimination in home appraisals. 
Um, Vice President Kamala Harris has announced a plan that intends to end racial and ethnic discrimination in the appraisal of home values. The plan is part of a broader federal effort to address a wealth gap that systemic inequality has perpetuated. The plan is part of a broader federal effort to address a wealth gap that systemic inequality has perpetuated. On the centennial of the Tulsa race massacre, President Joe Biden announced the creation of a federal interagency task force to address systemic devaluations of homes and predominantly black and brown neighborhoods. The, the, uh, the Property Appraisal and Valuation Equity Task Force by HUD Secretary Marsha Fudge and White House Domestic Policy Advisor Ambassador Susan Rice set out on a six-month mission to determine root causes of appraisal discrimination and develop solutions. Now, Joe Biden announced this when he went to Tulsa, okay? I don't know. Now we talked about it here on this show when it happened. I don't know how many people remember this. I don't know how many people uh, read the information at whitehouse.gov. And I, and um, let me see something here. I had it and I just took it down. Now we talked about this when this happened because on this show, we actually did like with real substance, not this nonsense that a lot of people want to deal with on social media because they're, social media pimps and whores we don't we don't do that here we deal with real substance how many people remember this here we talked about it when it happened fact sheet biden harris administration announces new actions to build black wealth and narrow the racial wealth gap june 1st 2021 now this is something that joe biden announced when he went down to tulsa tulsa okay for the commemoration of the tulsa race massacre 100 years ago, the thriving black community of Greenwood, this is, the, the, this is at whitehouse.gov, just so people know. All this stuff is at whitehouse.gov, all right? 100 years ago, the thriving black community of Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, known as Black Wall Street, was ruthlessly attacked by a violent white supremacist mob. An estimated 300 black Americans were killed and another 10,000 were left destitute and homeless. The destruction wrought on uh, Greenwood neighborhood, on the Greenwood neighborhood and his families was followed by laws and policies that made recovery nearly impossible. The streets were redlined, locking black Tulsans out of home ownership and access to credit. Federal highways built through the heart of Greenwood cut off families and businesses from economic opportunity and chronic disinvestment by the federal government in black entrepreneurs and small businesses denied black wall street a fair shot at rebuilding these are the stories of greenwood but they have echoes in countless blindies across the country because disparities in wealth compound like an interest rate, 
the disinvestment in black families in Tulsa and across the country throughout our history is still felt sharply today. The median uh, black American family has 13 cents for every uh, $1 in wealth held by white families, okay? Uh, on the centennial of the Tulsa race massacre, the Biden-Harris administration is announcing new steps to help narrow the racial wealth gap and reinvestment in communities that have been left behind by failed policies. Specific, specifically, the administration is expanding access to two key wealth creators, home ownership and small business ownership in communities, communities of color and disadvantaged communities. Okay, so then you can read the rest of this here. All right. Um, the. Okay, so read the rest of this here. All right. Now, if we go back to what took place today, how many people have read this before? Just curious. How many people have read this before? Now, we talked about it here on this show right around June 1st, 2021, when this came out. Okay, the pay the the uh the property appraisal and value equity task force headed by HUD Secretary Marsha Fudge and White House Domestic Policy Advisor Ambassador Susan Rice set out on a six month mission to the to determine root causes of appraisal discrimination and develop solutions. Vice President Kamala Harris announced the PAVE Action Plan at the White House on Wednesday. March 23rd, 2022, she offered remarks on the plan as the White House hosted affected families to share their stories of appraisal discrimination. Uh, Vice President Kamala Harris said in her opening remarks, we've heard the stories of people who have tried everything to avoid an unfair appraisal, stories like that of Tanisha and her family. Uh, the Austin family from Marin City were among the families invited to the White House. Many will recall uh, the Austin family story of their home being undervalued by nearly $500,000. We talked about that here on this show. The, the, the African-American family's home value went up when they took down uh, family, uh, family photos and artwork before having a white friend stand in for them in a subsequent appraisal. Vice President Kamala Harris um, uh, I'm, I'm telling my family's story because I know appraisal bias is holding African Americans back from growing and supporting their families in a way that we want to and deserve to, said Tanisha Tate Austin as she welcomed Vice President Kamala Harris to the stage. So um, how many of y'all heard about this today? Now, I want to go to this clip here because then we talked about this story when it happened here on this show. And I want to go to this piece here from ABC Channel 7. So let me cue this up. And then we'll go to. Um... Let 
Then we'll go to uh, what happened today, Vice President Kamala Harris. Let's see. Can we? Um, because they have a they they um, have a story that gives some that gives some background information. They have a story to get some background information. Let me pull this one up here from um, what happened today. Thank you for joining us. For over a year, ABC 7 News has highlighted issues of appraisal discrimination. Families of color who have had their home appraisals come in for less than expected. They believe their race plays a role in that devaluation. Today, a major announcement from the White House task force created to address this topic. ABC 7 News race and social justice reporter Julian Glover has been covering this issue in depth. And he is in Washington, D.C. right now to cover the event. All day long, he's been tweeting updates and sharing clips of what's been going on. And Julian joins us live from the White House tonight with the proposed changes and reaction from the local couple who've been at the very heart of this story. And what an inspirational couple they have been, Julian. So inspirational. Good evening to you, Ama and Dan from the White House, where we have witnessed the rollout of actions and proposals from the Biden administration to address those systemic devaluations of homes in black and brown neighborhoods, an issue that the Austin family that you just mentioned from Marin City know all too well after their home was devalued by half a million dollars a story. We broke right here on ABC 7 News. The a million dollars a story we broke right here on ABC 7 News. The Austins have now become the face of appraisal discrimination and today they came face to face with Vice President Kamala Harris. From Marin City to the White House, Paul and Tanisha Austin sharing their story of a lowball appraisal by half a million dollars at the most powerful podium in the world. I'm telling my family's story because I know appraisal bias is holding African Americans back from growing and supporting their families in the way that we want to and deserve to. Vice President Harris on hand at the announcement of the 21-point property appraisal and valuation equity action plan to address appraisal bias and discrimination. And we've heard the stories, stories of people who have tried everything to avoid an unfair appraisal. Stories like that of Tanisha and her family. Our administration is releasing the PAVE action plan. This plan outlines a comprehensive set of actions that our administration will take to advance equity in the appraisal process. The PAVE action plan calls for new guidance to improve the reconsideration of value process if the initial home appraisal is lower than expected, working to diversify the appraisal field and recruit more women and people of color, requiring appraisal anti-bias, fair housing and fair lending training for appraisers, and working with Congress on legislation to modernize governance of appraisers, giving more regulatory authority to the federal government. The Austins were invited to a roundtable with other families from Ohio and Maryland, also hit with lowball appraisals, forcing them to miss out on lower interest rates and lower mortgage payments. We sat down for a one-on-one -on -one interview with Housing and Urban Development Secretary Marsha Fudge, who led the PAVE effort over the last six months. Hearing from so many families, like the Austins from Marin City, these are stories that you knew, but hearing them directly from these families, again, like the Austin family, what's in your heart after hearing their testimony of having their homes devalued? It was all I could do to not just break into tears, because you could feel 
their anguish, their pain, their hurt. But I think that the system itself is so broken. And that broken system is one that's even affecting the housing secretary. Your home is valued for $25,000 less than two doors down from you. How does that happen to the HUD secretary? You know, because I live in a black neighborhood. So my neighborhood is one that is automatically considered to be not as good as a neighborhood that starts two doors from me. There is a bias, an inherent bias, that the, the, the appraisals have had for generations. This just didn't start. Secretary Fudge admits there is still work to be done as the Austins continue to fight with lawsuits against the appraiser and appraisal management company involved in their lowball appraisal. They're proud of the change created by their story and the stories of so many others we've covered here on ABC7 News. It's unfortunate that we're here. We are happy that we are here. There's going to be change moving forward. Absolutely. And you know, I always tell you I'm super proud of you and all the work that you put, put into this because without you, this story wouldn't have blew up the way that it did. And Paul and Tanisha are just so gracious. The task force of 13 federal agencies and offices will continue working over the next year to turn many of those proposals in today's action plan into true action. Dan? Uh, Julian, you've just done a terrific job reporting and exposing this issue. Uh, there's also forthcoming legislation to address appraisal bias. Tell us a little more about that, please. Yeah, Dan, we've already heard from Congresswoman Maxine Waters, who's already announced some forthcoming legislation. And sources tell me that two other representatives, now that they have their hands on the paved report, are also uh, planning on working up some legislation to, again, address those root causes of the systemic devaluations of homes in predominantly black and brown neighborhoods. Okay. For now, reporting live from the White House, Julian Glover, ABC 7 News. All right, Julian, thank you very much. Now, okay. So great reporting for uh, from Julian Glover for ABC 7 Chicago. Um, we're going to go to this. So read this here. Uh, this is at uh, whitehouse.gov. See, this is an example of how elections have consequences. So all those simple Simon-ass people that just want to keep running their mouths I don't even pay them any mind. I don't spend major time on minor people. Fact sheet, Biden-Harris administration releases action plan to address racial and ethnic bias in home valuations. March 23rd, 2022. This is at whitehouse.gov. You can check this out. We'll probably talk more about this. Um, may talk more about this on Sunday's show. I may have a guest on Sunday. I'm looking to line that up. Okay, I want to go to uh, want to go to the White House. Let's see what happened today. This is Vice President Kamala Harris at the rooting out bias in home appraisal uh, in home appraisals uh, uh, press conference, announcing the Paved Task Force Action Plan. Everyone, hello, hello, good morning. Please have a seat. Please have a seat. Uh, Tanisha, thank you for that kind introduction. Um, she and her family, her husband, have been so courageous in telling their story and, and really speaking up and speaking yeah. out um, to help fix a, a terribly broken system. Tanisha, I'm talking about you. Um, but really, because your story is the story of so many families 
and individuals. And the more that we are able to, to really highlight this issue, to educate the public in general about what is happening, um, the more we will be able to be successful in fixing the problem. So thank you for that introduction. Thank you. So today we are joined by the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, the great Marsha Fudge. I, I'm going to go off script and say that this, this is a, a real national leader. In her years in the United States Congress, she was always fighting for families, for working families, and for homeowners. As the Secretary of HUD, she has been, this has been personal to her to push through the bureaucracy to make this a priority, and it will benefit so many people who deserve to be seen. So thank you, Secretary Fudge, for all that you do. Thank you. Thank you. We are also joined by the director of our Domestic Policy Council, Ambassador Susan Rice. Thank you for your leadership and a group of homeowners who have been leaders in speaking against the injustice of appraisal bias. So thank you all for being here. So imagine a young couple that saves enough money to put a down payment on a home. The day they pick up the keys is a day of excitement and pride. That day, they own a piece of America. That home, they know, will be the foundation on which that family builds their future. As that home increases in value, that couple can count on that equity to help put a child through college or afford retirement or pass along assets to the next generation and usually all of those things. Historically, Many communities of color, however, have been prevented from taking full advantage of the wealth-building power of home ownership. For example, and, and the Californians here and most of us remember, in California in 1913, California passed the Alien Land Law, which targeted Asian Americans from owning land. Similar laws were on the books in states around the country until the 1950s. In the early 20th century, millions of Latino Americans were removed from our country, their property confiscated in an illegal act inaccurately known as repatriation. And segregation, restrictive covenants, and redlining long, long denied black homeowners a share in the American dream. That inequity continues today in the home appraisal system. Appraisals are meant to be fair and objective estimates of the market value of a property. There's a lot that rides on that estimate, but far too often, for far too many people, they are not fair and objective. Research has repeatedly shown that black homeowners are more likely to have their homes undervalued than other homeowners and homes in majority black and majority Latino neighborhoods are almost twice as likely to be undervalued than homes in other neighborhoods. Because their homes are undervalued, because their homes are undervalued, because understand there's a real consequence, black and Latino people often have to pay more for their mortgage, receive less when they sell the home, and are less able to access home equity lines of credit. Systemic bias in home valuations widens the racial gap, widens the racial wealth gap, 
and deepens the long-standing financial inequities that divide our communities. And we've heard the stories, stories of people who have tried everything to avoid an unfair appraisal. Stories like that of Tanisha and her family. And these stories are shocking. And they are evidence that systemic change is urgently needed. Throughout my career, I have fought to defend homeowners from abuse and injustice. As Tanisha shared, when I was the Attorney General of California, we secured $20 billion for homeowners harmed by the big banks during the foreclosure crisis. And part of that was about predatory lending practices, targeting just the same communities that we are talking about today. So then I drafted and helped pass the Homeowner Bill of Rights to help protect consumers from unfair mortgages and predatory foreclosure practices. It was one of the first bills of its kind in our country. And our administration is continuing that work by fighting on behalf of all homeowners. Last summer, our president, Joe Biden, created the Property Appraisal and Valuation Equity Task Force, also known as PAVE. This task force will identify and root out systemic home appraisal bias. Today, after months of deliberation and collaboration with homeowners and home buyers, representatives of the mortgage and appraisal industry, and community leaders, our administration is releasing the PAVE Action Plan. This plan outlines a comprehensive set of actions that our administration will take to advance equity in the appraisal process. The home appraisal workforce is one of the least diverse in our nation. Less than 5% of home appraisers in America are people of color. This lack of diversity can introduce both conscious and unconscious biases that make home appraisals less accurate and less fair. Our administration will now require those who conduct appraisals for federal programs must take part in anti-bias, fair housing, and fair lending training. There are solutions. There are solutions. And we will work with the industry to require all appraisers to receive this training. We will also help expand the training pipeline for new appraisers. In many states, in addition to classroom learning, appraisers have to complete thousands of hours of apprenticeship-like training before they become fully certified. So these apprenticeships, well, they're often unpaid. And apprentices often are required to find an appraiser themselves who is willing to take them on as a trainee. So if they don't have those relationships, if those relationships don't exist in their community, then it is much more difficult for them to satisfy the requirements to become an appraiser. So we have to take that into account also. And the solution, part of the solution, is to provide funding and technical assistance to states to make pathways into the profession more accessible for underrepresented groups. Another issue is home appraisal algorithms. So 
algorithms. It's a fancy word for basically a, a, a system that will make decisions, right, based on the input it has, that will arrive at conclusions that can have a real impact on the subjects of those decisions. So these algorithms, the home appraisal algorithms, have the potential, when used properly, to reduce bias in the home appraisal process. But if these algorithms are based on biased data, well, then there's a real risk they could produce biased valuations. So to address this, we are proud to announce that new rules are being developed to eliminate bias in appraisal algorithms. <laughs> rules that if, and I'm going to say when, approved, will apply to all lenders using these technologies. So today we are releasing a resource guide for homeowners and home buyers who suspect that they have received a biased appraisal. And this guide will explain to folks who are concerned that this might have happened their rights. It'll explain their rights as consumers to challenge and correct a biased appraisal. And it is available on the website um, at HUD and will be available to all those who, who would like to have that information. Today we are also launching a public awareness campaign to ensure consumers that they know their rights before they seek a home appraisal. And our action plan serves as an important step toward a more just and equitable home valuation system. Our All right. We're going to pause it right there. Okay, you could uh, check out the rest of that. That's from uh, the White House's YouTube channel. Press conferences, all that stuff they broadcast there and upload there. It's at the White House's press uh, YouTube channel. Um, and, and read the, uh, we posted it, we, we uh, showed it to you also, the statement, uh, press release, that's at, that's at whitehouse.gov. Uh, you can uh, check this out also. A uh, fact sheet, uh, Biden-Harris administration releases action plan to address racial and ethnic bias in home valuations. All right, look, we're going to get out of here. Uh, if you'd like this type of information, uh, you can support the African History Network. Dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App and through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. We're celebrating our 12th year anniversary I mean, broadcasting the African History Network show. I've been doing this for 12 years. Started out uh, first broadcast March 10th, 2010. Started out on the Harambe Radio Network, then went to Blog Talk Radio. Um, I've been on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation WFDF. Uh, it'll be six years in April. And we appreciate the support. This helps us keep doing the research, pay the bills, stay on the air, keep broadcasting. Be sure to register for the online classes I teach on Saturdays and Sundays. We have a bundle pack, uh, which is an excellent value. Uh, you can register for both classes for only $100, okay? Both 10-week online classes for only $100. You can use this information with your children, and even after the class is over with, uh, even after the 10-week uh, class is over with, you still have access to the full class. You can still go back and watch as many times as you want to. So we have it at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Uh, we'll post a link here. Also, uh, you can register for the bundle pack. 
understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school, ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa. And um, also from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. We do those on Saturdays and Sundays. All right, look, we have to get out of here. Remember, at the African History Network, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct your own behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. And uh, we'll talk to you tomorrow. And I'll be back on uh, Roland Martin Unfiltered on Friday. Okay. All right. Uh, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. The work that I do is larger than the fashion industry, it's larger than the art world. And I believe that I was born to bring newness into this world. I'm Kaima McIntyre. I'm 24 years old and I'm an artist. I create everything from paintings to jewelry design, metaphysical jewelry to be specific, and fashion design. The only reason why my prom dress went viral is because people needed it. Within a few days of going viral, Natori Naughton reached out to me. She's like, I saw your dress, can you make me a dress? I was equally as shocked to be asked by a celebrity to design their dress at the age of 17. That's just one person and the list just continues to go on to Janet Jackson, to Tyra Banks. It really hits home. That means that the discussion is happening on the grounds in real time. Jeanette Davis is a well-established author with six published books. Black Survival in White America from Past History to the Next Century was published in 1995 and it delves into the history of African Americans before slavery up to contemporary times. The Great Divide Between Blacks and Whites was released in 2008 and her autobiography, Black Just Like My Mama, was published in 2010. Soulful Journey, The Business of Beings, was released in December 2021 and her two latest books, Echoes from the Heart, Love Throws Poetry, and Master Being Human were both published in January of 2022. Jeanette Davis' writings delve deeply into the psyche of black people from ancient to contemporary times. She cuts no corners and leaves no stones unturned in relating truth, letting the chips fall where they may on both African and European doorsteps. Order Jeanette Davis's books today at Amazon.com. Search for Jeanette Davis and get to know her work today. iRedify is a black-owned digital platform that showcases black and brown cultures and people. The books on the platform are written by African-American authors, Afro-Caribbean authors, African authors, and so much more. Kids 14 and under can read eBooks, listen to audiobooks, and complete learning activities. Kids can even write in the books digitally. Get unlimited access to everything on the platform for only $8.99 a month at iRedify.com. Sign up for your membership today. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.